Singing Dutchman Productions. Hello and welcome to Doug's Front Porch, a podcast where I get to sit down with friends old and new and have honest conversations. Today I welcome an old dear. She's not old, but she's an old friend. Dear friend, Kai Miller up on the front porch. Kai, thanks so much for coming on the show. Sure, thanks for having me, Doug. You really did emphasize old quite a bit. It's like I just had a birthday, so I am old. Yes, Kai and I have known each other since, well, I guess... Well, since childhood, for sure. Uh, we grew up uh, together. I went to high school together. Kai was actually a year ahead of me, but because of scheduling things, we actually had some classes together, which was a lot of fun, which normally didn't necessarily happen uh, outside of like the music classes and things like that. But you were actually in my German classes uh, for most of high school, which was fun yeah. getting the chance to be with different kids that what you know from what we're used to doing through like elementary and all that stuff. Um, but Kai, you've you've led in in your short life. Uh, you've led a crazy journey, and I can't wait to have you talk about that a little bit today. So let's kind of introduce you to the audience. Tell uh, my listeners a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? I mean, I kind of spoiled that a little bit, but uh, you know, I know you had brothers and sisters. Would you definitely like talk a little bit about them? What that was like growing up for you? Because your brother, or well, yeah, well, maybe you'll tell us a little bit about that. The, the dynamics there, and who he is, uh, and what that must have been like for you as a as a sister growing up with him. But go ahead, take it away, Kai. <laughs> well, I don't know where to start. I mean, honestly, so we we moved to the school where you and I went to school together in in four, when I was in fourth grade. Um, and that was a pretty big deal for me just because at that age, you've already made some friendships and things. And we moved to this house where there were no other houses around, no other real kids on the block, anything like that. So school was school and sports were really um, where I got to know people. I didn't have neighborhood kids. So it was me and my two brothers um, and then whatever friends I made in school. So um, graduated, went to college in Boston for journalism, um, later moved to Texas where there's not a ton of journalism in Houston and ended up working at Johnson Space Center for NASA. And that was a really pivotal point in my professional life. Um, I was a first responder to the Columbia shuttle disaster and became super interested in public service. Oh, okay, we got we got to pause this. Yeah. I didn't even know that. Okay, I knew you. Yeah. I knew you worked at NASA. I never really quite knew what you did at NASA, and you also eventually journeyed to the VA, and we could talk about that too. But so I need to rewind a little bit. I, I knew you went to Boston, got your degree in journalism. Well, then how did you make that leap from from a degree in journalism? And and was your concentration more like print journalism? Like what did you envision yourself? Yeah. Yeah, magazine, magazine journalism. Um, I was very, very interested in it. I worked at the paper in Boston. I actually transferred during college to University of Houston and became more, I went into English. I'm an English major. Um, but yeah, really saw myself as a, a print writer more than anything else. But when there are no real opportunities locally and you need to make some money, you do, you know, you figure out ways to make your degree work. Um, so I ended up at Johnson Space Center, learned how to code uh, and became an electronic forms. I, I turned a lot of our forms electronic at JSC. And then because I was at JSC, the morning that the shuttle um, that the shuttle 
basically exploded over North America, I was called in early um, to help with some of those forms and to help with the recovery effort. So again, yeah, again, pretty- I'm kind of like it's tough for me to realize to uh, like put my wrap my head around this. You went from this writing English to coding, and to me, I know coding is a language, and you know, it, it, but how was that? Was that an easy transition for you to make, or was it something that you got really like interested in? And you're like, here's an opportunity for me to do something, or it, to me, it sounds like it's such a it's such a different track. You know what I mean from the outside perspective. I mean, Doug, you so you mentioned at the beginning that we were in German class together. So German was actually one of three languages that I took in high school. So I was I was actually in Spanish class. I took German. I the year later I started German, and then I was studying French with our gifted teacher during lunch. So I have I don't know why, but that's a piece of my brain that tends to work pretty well. And when I was looking for roles at JSC. I didn't know coding, but that's what they really needed. And they needed someone who could code and talk to people and relate to people. Um, as a journalist, that was one of the things that I had kind of gotten okay at was interviewing, you know, so basically taking requirements if you're an IT person. Um, so I taught myself code thinking about it as a language. Like, how would you do these? How would I learn this if it was Spanish? How would I learn this if it was German? I was not a good coder. I knew very basic, (laughs) very basic commands and basic languages, and I could not do it today, but that was how I picked it up. It was a lot easier for me to pick up coding than for a lot of, you know, IT folks who are not great with people to learn how to be better with people. So so you were young in your career and this massive tragedy happens. How, what was that like for you to experience? And like, how do you even navigate those waters? Um, it was honestly, it, it was pretty earth shaking for me. I was, I think, 22, if I remember correctly. And um, I grew up looking at the stars with my dad. I grew up thinking space was one of the coolest things that you could ever get into. And when I got a job at JSC, I felt so lucky to be walking around this place, to be in elevators with astronauts, to, you know, to to get to see behind the scenes of things that I had dreamed about. Um, And it very quickly that morning occurred to me that these seven people had genuinely given their lives just for, for research, for the betterment of humanity. And it was, you know, it was real real true public service in the same way that our service members you know go abroad and um are deployed on our behalf every day so it it really because it was that early in my career i think it was something that i felt pretty deeply because i had not had a lot of professional experiences i also had no kids so i could be on site 18 hours a day i could be very helpful in that recovery effort in ways that made me feel like I was doing something. And it quickly occurred to me, that's a thing that I really needed professionally. I needed to feel like I was contributing in some way, not just, you know, not just earning a paycheck or gaining skills. So So what did that experience teach you? Looking back on it now. Yeah, those are two big things. Even today, I know that in my, in my life, 
one of the things that it taught me about myself is if I'm not in a career or a job where I'm very cause driven, I have to find other ways to do that or I'm not going to be my full self. So that's a very important thing. Um, it also taught me when there's a crisis happening, this sounds ridiculous, but calm under pressure, right? It's the ability to manage a team of people, because a lot of what we did during that time was we would get 20 people into a conference room and we'd be taking debris reports from the hotlines um, and honestly remains reports from the hotlines and they'd be entering this information into the database that we created. Being able to lead and guide a team of people who were the NASA is a real family. It's a real community and people feel things deeply when something happens there. So keeping them going while trying to keep yourself going and stay fed and sleep and all of those things, um, you learn these things about yourself that help you kind of center when something tragic or something stressful uh, is going on. So that was a that was a that was a really big thing. That I it was learned. A, it's a huge lesson, two huge lessons to learn so early in one's career. I mean, those yeah. are things I think a lot of people develop over over a career. Uh, and it was like you had baptism by fire there in that sense. It's like, here I am 22 fresh in this career and I'm going to, you know, I'm getting this stuff thrown at me that, you know, the average 22 year old in the, in a brand new profession is not experiencing. So yeah. it's crazy. It, it was it was pretty it was very, very pivotal. And I describe it as one of the defining moments of my career because of learning how important service was to me and learning those things about myself. Um, beyond that, it was we were already so close and a lot of us became closer professionally and personally. So it was it was a it was a pretty um, interesting moment in my life. And it's something that every you know, every February I take a minute, I have their picture up on my wall and I, I think about those things and just try and like recenter myself and what I'm doing every day. Well, let's continue with this idea of service because after NASA, then you went on to the VA. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I, most Americans, of course, are familiar with Veterans Affairs, but I don't think most Americans truly understand what how big it is and yeah. what they actually do. I mean, more people complain about it, I think, than actually anything else. So tell us just a little bit about your time with the VA. Yeah, well, so you when you were asking this question, I started smiling really big. I love I love VA. It is um, a place I had just come from NASA and I went to VA and here I'm working with some of the most caring and compassionate and driven people you could imagine working with. But it is a monumental government organization. It is the largest civilian technology or the largest civilian um, technology organization, which is where I worked in the technology group um, in the country, the VA itself, you have to remember, it's a healthcare administration. They administer benefits from education to health benefits to uh, to uh, to um, insurance benefits housing, all sorts of things. Then you have the Memorial Affairs Division, and then you have all of the corporate offices that keep VA running. So it's a cabinet level organization that's doing the job of probably six or seven different companies, if you think about it in terms of private industry. So making things happen in that group is incredibly challenging. Um, but for me, it was my my granddad, who I was very, very close with, was a veteran. He was a Navy Reserve and Air Force veteran. And 
he was in he was a, com- a computer teacher in high school. So here I went to work in the technology organization of VA and just felt like, you know, I'm talking about at NASA learning about how I needed to be cause driven. I had this place that I was working that every day when I went in, I could think about my granddad, my cousins, my aunt, my uncle. Those are the people I was really there to make a difference for. Um, I was there for about 13 years and I truly, truly loved it. Um, Just like NASA, I miss it a lot. Um, But there is a lot of it that was absolutely draining. Um, And I wish it could be a lot better for our veterans, but it is, it's a very difficult thing that the people who work at VA are doing every day. This is a really tough question. I know you can't really, but I'm going to ask it anyway, Um, (laughs) because I've talked to other people uh, that have worked with the VA and I have lots of friends that, that receive benefits from the VA, Um, like all the things that you listed. And like I said earlier, my friends that are, that are veterans that are receiving services more nine times out of 10 they're not they're not pleased with what's happening and, and maybe the pace and how long it takes to get things done, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Why do you think the VA is it because the VA is just so massive or is yeah. it that it's underfunded or is it just a combination of all of these things trying to work at the same time? Oh, my gosh. It's so many things. I mean, it is there. You could start at the very beginning, you know, when our service members are separating from service being able to um, educate military service members from the moment they're separating on the benefits they're entitled to, um, rather than them realizing later and entering midstream. It, it's a That's a challenging thing. The fact that we may have presidential administrations change every, every four years, which means most of the leadership positions in VA change every presidential administration because they are all political appointees, right? So you get new people who come in with new ways they want to put their mark on it, um, new strategies that they want to try. And in a lot of cases, they're really great strategies, but four years is not enough time to really make change in an organization of that size. So the, the consistency in leadership is a pretty big thing. Um, not quality. They're incredibly smart people. It's just the the time that they're there for. Um, but then beyond that, it is, you know, you you have six or seven different people touching each claim. You might get six or seven different answers. So there's a there are a dozen different reasons people could be waiting for their benefits. None of them are great, um, but they are. One of the things that I got the privilege of seeing behind the scenes were that there are people who are working incredibly hard on behalf of veterans. I got to go with my granddad to his appointments at the Lebanon VA Medical Center and at Coatesville um, here in Pennsylvania. And I got to see him, you know, just absolutely love and adore his care providers who were there with him as he, you know, as he got older and was dealing with all these injuries and illnesses and things like that. So it's a great organization. It just, it's like an uphill battle. It's a constant uphill battle. Yeah. I, I wish, you know, it's one of the things that everybody, you know, especially come uh, election cycle and all this, Oh, we, you're support of veterans, support of veterans. I think myself, well, are we, you know, like, <laughs> couldn't we be doing this a little bit better? We say we do, I know. but it's frustrating from my end at least. And I'm not one that actually receives any benefits from it, right? but just the, the sense that, we, we say that we, you know, this is such an important thing for us as a society, which I, it is, but I just think all too often we're not, 
we could do a better job uh, from an outsider. Way better yeah. job. Yeah, we could do a way better job. I don't know what the answers to those things are, but I do know one of the things is just allow some consistency in that organization. It would make a huge difference. But besides that, that is not, you know, those are things that way more intelligent people are working on than I am. So. Okay. So the next thing I want to talk to you about is something relatively new in your life. And um, so I saw, so, you know, the whole reason I started this podcast back during the pandemic was that I feel the value. One of the things that in, from my perspective that our society is sorely lacking is the ability for people to just sit down and talk, communicate, period, communicate. Um, I think we've, we've gone astray from our ability to do that in a, in a level-headed way, in an open-minded way. And the other day uh, I was on LinkedIn and one of your posts just popped up in my feed and it, it made me stop. And I want to uh, quote something here and then I want to pick your brain. Oh, uh, no. You said in this pope, in this you post, said, you said, <laughs> some of my favorite things are highly effective communication, trust, authenticity, and empathy. Okay. When I read that, I was like, hey, those are some of my favorite things too. Yeah. But, I think everybody has their own perspective on what those words mean to them, but I want Kai's definition of what those are. And let's just start with one that I think is, it's a term that we throw around so much in, in modern culture, effectively, you know, effective communication. What yeah. is effective communication to you? Oh man, I was actually hoping you'd start at the other end with empathy. Okay, all right, to let's me, start. No, 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 we'll do that. Okay. Yeah, uh, that's rewind. a big part of it. Yeah, rewind. What okay. I what I want to start with. <laughs> yes. Um. Actually, Kai, I think we should start with empathy. What is empathy for you? <laughs> um. Well, empathy is something right now. A lot of people throw the word empathy around, and they use it in terms of. You know, Doug's not feeling great right now. I know what it feels like to not feel great. So I'm going to think about the fact that maybe Doug needs to stop and cough every once in a while. That's not real empathy, right? Real empathy is realizing you're not feeling well. You got up, you got dressed, like really putting myself in your shoes. You got on Zoom. You didn't cancel this appointment. You're not at your 100%. You got two sick kids and a sick wife. Like, Empathy is really not just looking at a person and going, I can relate to that, but taking the intentional time to sit where that person is sitting and to walk in the same path, in the same shoes that that person is walking in, it is difficult and it takes a lot of time. Empathy happens to be at the center of a lot of what I do professionally, but I also bring it into my personal life, obviously. Um, as much as possible, too. And empathy, to me, is the key to effective communication. Um, so we didn't talk a lot about this. I started as a journalist, um, and then I went into coding. My The majority of my career has been in strategic communication. So I'm a strategic communication professional. Uh, I started multiple comm organizations. Actually, so I, have, our, I have to ask what what is I mean, that's a that's a ten dollar term. Yeah. What, what is a what is strategic communication? So in the government, we can't use the word marketing in the government. So in a lot of cases, it's like external outreach, but it's also the internal sort of, quote, corporate communication of how do we make sure that the stories of these individual divisions are being told effectively? 
helping them with, you know, talking points if they're giving a speech, little tactical things like presentations, stuff like that. But another childhood friend of ours, Monica Stout, has actually been um, a member of a couple of the the organizations that I've put together. So uh, effective communication to me, and this, this applies to a comm organization, a lot of people think about it in terms of how do I most effectively tell you what I want to say? In reality, effective communication is not just what I want to say, it's what you really need to hear and the way in which you're going to hear it, right? But, but it, And it's not for clarification purposes. It's not you trying to make me believe a certain thing or think a certain thing. Right, exactly. It is understanding the fact that Doug Mainford is going to understand a message that I'm trying to deliver in a very different way from, well, you you mentioned my one of my two brothers at the beginning, than say Dane Miller, who is, you know, a very different person from who you are. So those are it's it's knowing your audience, but it's also really deeply understanding your audience and translating what the messages that you want to deliver in a way that you'll most effectively receive it and can hear it. That's really different to me than just writing an article, right? It's sitting in your shoes for a while and understanding all of the competing priorities that you have going on, your education, where you grew up, what your day looks like and how much time you have to actually receive and understand information and customizing it for you in a way that you give a crap about it. From right? my from my perspective though, that is a huge um, invest. Like you that is an yeah. investment of time, resources. Um but you feel that if it's done right, then the return on investment is tenfold or more. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Okay. And the people that I mean, you're a teacher, right? So you know students learn differently and you might have a, a central lesson that you're delivering but you might need to take a little bit of extra time with one kid in the class versus another kid in the class and translate in a way that's a little bit different to them, whether it's visual or just understanding that they don't have somebody at home helping with homework. So bringing them in during a study hall, something like that. Communications professionals were trained in this same way. We spend decades learning how to do this. So it's not as it's it's still very intentional, but it's not going to take us, you know, a huge amount of time to do that because we understand how to how to put ourselves in those positions of the people that we're communicating with. All right. What about authenticity? That was one of your words as well. Authenticity. Yeah. So this is one of my favorite things because I think it takes uh, I think some people never learn how to be authentic <laughs> or never feel comfortable. being. Well, and authentic. I think I think also part of it, too, is because of our social media landscape that what I think it's difficult for some people to to I think people think they're being authentic. Yeah. But a lot of times they're not. I, right. I mean, it's, I, and like, has has the line of authenticity in our society been blurred so much that we really 
can we tell the difference between when someone's being authentic uh, and when not, especially in those kinds of platforms? I think face to face, you can, I mean, authenticity is pretty, pretty easy to pick out when you're with somebody. Or um, inauthenticity, right? Yeah, like, no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah, I can yeah, tell yeah. you're, you're not being yourself with me right now. Or so here for me personally, authenticity means that I show up as Kai regardless of the situation I'm in. Do I have mildly different versions of myself depending upon the environment? Yeah, I'm I'm going to go into work in a different way than I'm talking to my brothers or than somebody I'm, you know, hanging out at a bar and we're having a cocktail or something like that, right? But by and large, it means that I'm going to show up at work and what you get from me, you can count on. I'm not going to turn around and say something different to someone else because they're a different person and I need to come off better to them, right? So authenticity to me as a communicator is very, very important because I need the people that I'm communicating with to trust what I'm saying. As a leader, I need my employees and the people that I'm working with to trust what I'm saying. How can they possibly trust what I'm saying? If I show up and it's very clear that I have a very, Doug, you know me well enough. I'm not super polished. Like when I'm speaking, you're going to hear me swear. You're going to hear me use slang. You're going to hear me. I don't always, you know, I use contractions. You're going to get me. I'm going to laugh a lot. I'm going to say things that are mildly off track, right? That's because I want to build trust with the people that I bring into my life and that I bring into my career. So those things all work very, very cohesively together in my mind. Um, but yeah, social media. Too. I, well, I, I agree with you on all that stuff, of course. Um, I just think like when I think about where we are right now in our country and how much lack of trust there is and, yeah. and and some people view it as lack of authenticity. I mean, it's all these things we're talking about, lack of empathy, lack of authenticity, lack of trust. Do you think we're going to be able to swing the pendulum the other way? Right now? Yeah. No. Um, because there are too many people who are too focused on what I was sharing about effective communication, which is getting my getting you to hear my message, right? That's not effective communication. And you know, so I am I am fairly liberal, right? In my political beliefs. I am on the board of directors for our LGBT center. It is very deeply important to me that everyone be treated and have the same rights as every other human being. Living in Berks County, Pennsylvania, it is. <laughs> I have a number of friends who do not politically believe the same things that I do. However, the people that I have who are my friends who do not politically believe the same things I do are people that I have built a level of trust with and I can listen to them and have empathetic, trusted discourse and they do the same with me. They ask my opinion on things. They ask why I said a certain thing. They ask why I posted a certain thing on Facebook. Those are the ways that we'd be able to swing the pendulum is by somehow seeing beyond political platforms and you know our own deeply held beliefs to hold out a hand and say, I hear you saying something different and I'd like to understand it. Not because I want to change your mind, but because it helps me build empathy for who you are and where you're coming from.
Do you think it's because we're uh, – this is like going a little deeper, but do you think – My because- God, you're getting so deep, Doug. Yeah, it's like- all right. No, it's good, though. It's good. <laughs> That's what I do when I'm on my front porch and I got a cocktail in my hand looking That's up right. at the stars. Um, <laughs> do you think it's because we're afraid to, um, of, of the vulnerability aspect of it all? Or that's part of it? I think that's part of it to a certain extent. I do think that's a big part of it. I also think that, well, this is also vulnerability. I think that right now and for the last, I don't know how long, but I think there's a huge fear of looking like you're wrong or like you don't have all the answers or admitting someone else might be right about something when in reality. That is one of the number one conversations I have with most of my students right now, uh, my high school students. Yeah. Um, it's that fear of, of, of being wrong, that fear of making a mistake, that fear of looking vulnerable. And I try to be as authentic with them as possible and tell them, like, I, I make mistakes. We all make mistakes. And, and I don't know if it's something that somehow maybe since our childhood as a society, we've kind of like ingrained this into kids somehow, maybe through subliminal yeah. messages or something. Um <laughs> through cartoons i don't know but this i have so many students that on the surface are confident um you know hard workers but if they get into a situation where they have to where they become vulnerable where they they make a mistake or they might make a mistake a lot of those kids will just back down and walk away instead of meeting that challenge head on or even from the side um and i think you know when you talk about all these things that we're trying to discuss here, you know, authenticity, empathy, this good communication. If you, if we are, if we have people in our society that are like getting right up to the precipice of that challenge aspect or something that could move them in a, in a more positive direction just by taking one more step and they're constantly turning around and walking away. That's where I think we need more cheerleaders, so to speak, like, like what you're talking about. And what I see, you know, as, as the role of a teacher and other people in our society to push and parents. Oh, that's a whole the role of parents. But I, I mean, honestly, as you're talking, I'm trying to mentally process where, where does the willingness to talk about these things come from? And I'd be curious to hear from you, but I know in our house, we were encouraged to read to do our own research, to have sometimes very animated and loud dinner table conversations where we disagreed with each other. Sometimes we didn't talk to each other for days at a time as a result of them, but we were encouraged to form our own beliefs and we knew that it was okay to talk about them, but that we might be challenged on them too. And I think that was a big part of why both of my brothers and I now as adults, we can have these difficult conversations because we were sort of trained at home to be able to do it. And I, I think some of that might be missing where oh. Oh, I, I don't I, want I agree. to be I agree. parents, but I, I do think right now it's, it's very, I don't see, you know, I'm a, I'm a junior high soccer coach. I'm a junior high girls and learning coach. I, I spend a lot of time around kids I don't necessarily see them feeling comfortable bringing up things that might be super difficult anymore. I don't know why that is. I'm not saying any parents are necessarily wrong, but I know that's an environment I grew up in and maybe it helped contribute to my comfort level. No, I I agree. And I also think the system has changed a lot since we were in high school as well in how um, students are challenged 
or yeah. lack thereof right now. Um, I mean, that's what I'm seeing in the system. I mean, I've been working in the system now for 21 years, and that is definitely a, a change that I've seen over the last, I don't know, couple of years, that the system at least um, isn't placing a lot of kids into those challenging situations where they can then grow from that setback. Um, yeah. You know, and, and that leads to, that all keeps circling back to this whole conversation about communication too, because it's through setbacks, in, in my opinion, it's through those setbacks and through those challenges that all of us are then able to come out the other side and then also, also then be able to tell our own story more effectively as well. Yeah. So I, as you were talking again, I'm just kind of thinking about our high school German teacher, Herr Kissinger. He was so great at, I mean, difficult conversation topics, challenging the way we thought, and then sitting in silence. He he was so happy to throw a bomb out into the room and then just sit quietly and, st and stare at all of us until somebody came up with something to say. And it's, I think... Things like that now are a little bit more rare. Oh, trust me, because uh, I do it with my AP class a lot. And, uh, you know, we're talking about these deep philosophical questions of like the enlightenment and the role of, of law in man and society and all this. And I'll do that. I'll pull a Kissinger and I'll just throw this quote out there or I'll challenge it. And, and these kids will look back at me totally awkward, like, say something. <laughs> Come on, Maidenford, like poke the bear. Say something. I was like, it's not my turn to talk. Yeah, it's your turn yeah. to talk. And sometimes we sit there for an uncomfortable amount, <laughs> uncomfortable amount of minutes until someone finally says something. But then the conversation goes. But it takes that, you know, that first step, I guess. Well, I don't know. In general, I mean, adults are like this now, too. I mean, maybe they used to be. But part of my job now is executive coaching. And I have a number of folks that I've said, you need to be OK with silence as a leader. You need to be okay with positing a thought and just letting it sit out there for a while and waiting for somebody to come back. As a, To be a leader, it is not your job to give everyone the answers to everything. You have to kind of figure it out, which is what a teacher is doing too. Yeah, so. and I think that's also where we've we've strayed from the – from what is an effective leader as well. I think most most Americans are probably in that concept. The leader leads. They tell us, they delegate. They say, okay, you yeah. do this, you do that. I'm the captain, blah, 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 blah. But And I've worked for those administrators, those types of administrators. <laughs> and then I've also worked for administrators that take the exact opposite approach, like what you're talking about. And I will tell you who I prefer to work for. Uh, it's the <laughs> latter, not the former. That's for sure. Right, right, right. And it is all about communication. It's all about communication. It is. And it's about trust in yourself and the people who you're surrounding yourself with. So. Kai, this has been beyond fascinating. We could talk another hour and a half, I'm sure, just about some of these topics, about how we are <laughs> ineffective uh, at communicating. Even people that are good communicators struggle with it. I think that's another mm -hmm. thing. Some people can make it look so easy. and But it's it's hard. It's 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 hard. It's not easy to do. Yeah. It's not easy to be empathetic. It's not easy to build trust. It's not easy to, um, what was the other thing we were talking about? Authenticity, to authenticity. be authentic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those are things that everyone I think has to continue working at. Um, but like you, like you mentioned, you know, if, if we all work a little harder at it, I think, man, I think we could do some great things. I really do. Yeah, I do too. And I also think it comes down to, like I've, I, I've just mentioned it. It's the people who 
you surround yourself with most frequently, there's that old quote, what is it like you, you most resemble the five people you surround yourself with, right? So practicing being authentic, being empathetic, trusting and having, you know, and being trusted by those people who are closest to you, you got to make that immediate environment as um, open and welcoming to those kinds of things as possible, because it does take practice. It takes a lot of practice. So but the benefits outweigh the work yeah. for sure. Yeah, you feel better every day. Like this is who I am. Take it or leave it. This is these are my beliefs, but I'm also willing to listen to yours. It's so much easier to go to sleep at night when that's the kind of life you live. No, I agree. I agree. I agree. Well, Kai, we end every conversation with 10 quick questions. Um, oh, boy. Oh, you ready? <laughs> I'm ready. All right, here we go. These are easy, but I'm curious to see your answers to some of these. All right, number one, what is your morning drink of choice? Oh, coffee. And how do you take your coffee? Mm, I take it with oat milk and some collagen. And how long have you been? Have you always been a coffee drinker, like from a little kid on or? No, college. College, college. did it to you? Yeah. <laughs> I would yeah. imagine some of those 18 hour days at NASA probably uh, added yes. to that as well. <laughs> there was the Starbucks was really smart and they put us a, a Starbucks right outside the back gate of Johnson Space Center very early on. So there you go. <laughs> All right. Question number two. Who is a go to musical artist or group for you? Oh, Queen, Freddie Mercury. Oh, yeah, good choice. Um, Thank you. Number three, what movie can you watch over and over again and it never gets old? Oh, Doug, this is the worst answer. This is like one of my guilty pleasures. Thor Ragnarok. Oh, is okay. Like one of my all-time favorite movies. I know. So you don't need to relate to this at all. I don't know what it is, but it is like... It's just the, the most anxiety relieving movie to me. I love it so much. So are you really into like the whole? Uh... No. Oh, okay. 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 But that movie I mean, for whatever I've, reason. Okay. I've got two kids and my dad's super into that stuff. So I know like well, I've seen all the movies, but I don't get super into them. But that one caught something in my heart and I will watch it over and over <laughs> Oh, that's all right. That's all right. There's no bad answers here. There's no bad well, answers. <laughs> all right. Question number four. What is the last thing that you read? The last thing that I read was, um, I'm actually trying to remember because rem I'm reading a book called CXO Startup right now. Probably rereading the Sandman series by Neil Gaiman. Okay. I generally am reading one of those or listening to, I usually am listening to a book and reading one at the same time. So, so is there an author out there you could recommend to my audience that would like to learn more about being an effective communicator? Is there somebody out there that's writing good stuff right now about that? Well, Brene Brown is, she's not specific to communication, um, but empathy. And if they don't have time to read a book, Go on YouTube, watch, there's some cool, somebody did some cool animated shorts with her speeches, her TED Talks on empathy and things like that. And they've got little like woodland creatures on them. Very cute, three minutes a piece. Um, she is wonderful. So I think she is a great author in terms of um, authenticity and empathy, all of the things that contribute to great communication. Her name gets thrown around so much these days for a lot yeah. of different things. I mean. My wife is really big into her writings as well. And uh, I mean, her name comes up at the kitchen, at the dinner table quite often. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah she must, be, do she must be doing really good things. Okay. Yes. All right. What is your favorite pizza topping? I don't eat pizza. Oh, 
I can't have dairy anymore. Oh, okay. I will say, so this summer I went to visit another classmate of ours, Steve Soltizic in yes. Los Angeles. Yeah. Yeah. He took me to a pizza place that had vegan pizza topped with vegan macaroni and cheese. I was and, so happy. And it was I good? It was so good. <laughs> it was so good. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Number six, laying on the beach or going for a hike? Going for a hike every, every single day. Yeah, me too. Me too. Uh, number seven, you've invited me over for dinner. What are you making? Probably pulled pork. Ooh, okay. Pulled pork, guacamole, homemade tortillas. That's like my go-to. I That's delicious. I, I will be right <laughs> over. Holy cow. I uh, know. Well, then I don't get to see you as much for dinner. I know. I know. We need to fix that. We absolutely need to fix that. Uh, number eight, uh, what is a dream vacation destination for you? Oh, anywhere, anywhere. I just love going and seeing new places. Right now I'm very set on, I'd really like to go to Tokyo. I'd really like to go to Japan overall, but I just love, I love seeing new places and then, and experiencing new things and then also coming home and appreciating what I've got. Yeah. I hear you. I hear you. Um, what's okay. What is something you're afraid of? Spiders. Okay. <laughs> I was going to expect some like philosophical answer, but spiders no. is okay. I'm terrified of spiders. And you live in a set and you live in a 1700s era stone farmhouse. Yeah. So I'm sure you meet your fear every day. It's not a great environment for me, but you know, philosophical things. I feel like when you pick them apart, you can generally figure those out. I'm not getting away from spiders in this lifetime. <laughs> All right. Last question. What job other than one that you've had, would you love to have? That's a good one. That's right. I forgot you asked that one. Uh, a teacher. Really? I'd love to be a teacher. Yeah. Certain age group? Um, You know what? I do really well with the junior high God age, but I think it's, I think it's only because I only have them for a couple hours and I can make them run around a field if they talk back. So probably high school. And I think teaching school. teaching communications or English or what do you think? Probably probably English. I this is my more philosophical one. Yeah. You know, we had some pretty amazing teachers yes, growing we up. We had some pretty amazing coaches. So I try when I'm coaching to think about those teachers that gave me what I needed as a high school kid. And I feel like being able to do that every day would take some real intent of not getting in the daily grind of it. But I feel like it would be so, so fulfilling long term. Like, look at the things you've done. I am blown away. Like, the things your students say about you are just absolutely amazing. Well, I appreciate hearing that. And I think um, and I get asked this from time to time, like how to. You know, when I post this stuff online, what, what, what kids are like these this this week, I've been posting all these memes that these kids have been making of me and I didn't ask them to do it. They just started doing it. And people are like, how do you get your kids to do that kind of stuff? And I don't I, the answer is I don't know. I mean, I think what I'm doing is I'm doing the things that we were talking about earlier. I create an environment in my room that leads to authenticity and trust and empathy and the relationship naturally comes out of that. But, but, but as we were talking, I mean, that's, it's not, it's a hard thing to do because every 
you know, every year I get a whole new group of kids coming in that I don't know from Adam, you know, and you start all over and it's like, and you got to learn each kid. And exactly like you talked about, okay, how do I effectively get to this kid? And there's some, there's a lot of kids I don't get to, you know, there's a lot of kids that I I've never made connections with, but then I've, there's, I've been pretty lucky that I've made some great connections with other kids. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's tough. Um, people You've that say always like, done that though. You have always been yourself. It's one of the things that I respect and admire most about you is that, I have never questioned who Doug Maidenford is. Like, and, and I think all of your friends would agree with that. Going back to sixth grade, I have known who you were, and it's a very dependable thing. And I think my favorite one of those memes was, wasn't there Doug's giving hugs? Yes, Doug's giving yeah, hugs. I like that one a lot. That's great. Well, Kai, <laughs> it has been an absolute pleasure getting to catch up with you again. We don't do it often enough. We need to fix that. But I want to thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule and uh, coming up here on the front porch, being part of the, on the podcast. And I wish you all the best with your new endeavor of your business and this coaching that you're doing. And I, I just think it's great things. And I know that you are so effective at what you do and you're making people's lives better. And I want to thank you for doing that. And it's, it's making society better too, all that you're doing. Oh, so thanks. Keep up the great it's work. been super fun talking with you. I'm so happy we got to do it. We'll be in touch soon. Thanks, Kai. Okay. Thank you for listening to Doug's Front Porch, a conversational podcast with your host, Doug Maidenford. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Five stars only, please. Follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for Doug's Front Porch. Also, please feel free to tell all of your friends about the show, and I'll see you all next time on My Front Porch. Music.